Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. I think you're going to really enjoy today's conversation. I know I am. This person I've known for a long time. He's a friend. He's a colleague. And we've fortunately stayed in touch over the years. He meets the definition of servant leadership. He's worked in some of the perennial leaders in the B2B technology, enterprise software space, companies like Oracle, Monster, LogMeIn, QuickBase, Alice, and he's currently the SVP of sales at 3Play Media. Dave Phillips, my friend, welcome to the show. Wow. Didn't know who you're introducing, but it's great to see you. <laughs> great to see <laughs> you too. And uh, happy, happy Friday. Today is Friday. You're uh, in or near the great city of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm out here in Park City, Utah, but uh, the platform brings us together. Let me get right into it, Dave. You have a lot of perspective here, a lot of observations, a lot of experiences, and sometimes the scars to prove it. And the scalp, and the scalp to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone. Um, but there's a lot of myths in our business. What's a common myth about coaching salespeople, sales leaders that you believe is either misguided or, or perhaps just misunderstood? Yeah, I, I think... I think one of the things for me was that there's a person at like that sales people are born, not made. Um, <clears throat> personally, myself, I got into sales later in my career. I had started working in higher education and you know, chose to make a career change. And so I didn't start it out of the gates and had to learn my way there. Um, but I think we often think of it as that stereotypical big personality, charismatic person. Um, and, and I think there's all different types of salespeople there. And I, and I think the, the sales world is getting much more analytical and more, more thoughtful than it previously was. Um, I think the economy requires that. I think the SaaS model requires that. And so for me, I believe sales can be taught. Um, it can be taught to almost anyone. Um, it's whether or not they like this uh, as a uh, as a career, and so I think that's one of the biggest myths for me. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, late yesterday afternoon, just you know, ad hoc, like not unexpected conversation with someone that I've known for a long time. Uh, you know, he's been a perennial top performer, salesperson, and he's you know he's uh, you know he's in his fifties. Right. So he's, he's, you know, let's, let's, and he fits the, the definition of what we'll call old school. Yeah. And, you know, he was talking about the challenges of selling in this environment. And it was everything from, uh, you know, working for somebody who's younger than you, uh, or just, you know, the fact that it's a lot of it's via, uh, you know, Zoom or Zoom like platforms versus in, you know, in person, the steakhouse, the, the wine, you know, the, the golf, whatever. Um, 
you know, when you think about the fact that sales can be taught, what is something that, uh, you know, has been taught and, and has to have been taught as a result of this move more toward SaaS in, uh, in our industry? Yeah, I think there's a couple things, which is um, when, when you and I started, you know, we were selling on-prem software, okay? And we were selling it and then we were moving on because like the, the SaaS version of it was the support, the support side of it. And so um, I'd like to think you and I sold the true merits of our product, but uh, 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 an on-prem software person could sell it and then move on to the next one and then move on to the next one where in this SaaS world, you're selling it today and then a month from now when they're using it and it wasn't as easy as you said it was going to be or this piece of functionality wasn't ready just yet, you're reselling it and you're reselling it again. You're reselling it at renewal. And so the, I think that the job is harder now because customers have data. Um, customers can move users in and out. Customers can see you know, how they're using it, how many people are using it. And so it, I think it places a lot more responsibility on, on the sales side to, to really position your product the right way. And so what's, what's the manager, what is the sales coach's responsibility in there with this evolution? Um, and you know, what, what, do, what makes their job harder as they are coaching the skills required to be successful uh, as a sales professional? Yeah, it's, and so I think you're you're selling for the near end, the, the short term, and the long term there. And so you're 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 se- you're selling the right deal in terms of the size and the right deal in terms of fit. Because a deal that closes now, yeah, it may retire a Q4 number and may get you to your annual number, but a year from now, if it's a large deal and it was kind of missold, it can come back to bite you in the form of churn next year. Um, and so I think it's really focusing on, are they the right prospect? Are we positioning, are we positioning the right, um, uh, the product the right way? And are we selling them the right amount of users so that this can grow over time as opposed to, you know, um, you know, we used to, uh, we used to call it overhead, you know, when I was at QuickBase and the overhead was the amount of licenses you sold them versus the amount of that, that you were using. And so if there's a lot of overhead in the, in that, um, in their, in their usage, you know, you're getting a downgrade. And so I think it's, how do we position this right for now that can grow and scale over time? And there's a, there's a lot of analysis that goes into that. So I mentioned the conversation I had yesterday. One of the other things that came out of that was this person talked, you know, lamented a little bit about, um, oh, my manager these days doesn't, doesn't appreciate relationships. Right. And I think this person could be characterized as that stereotypical relationship salesperson. And when I hung up, I was thinking, and you're kind of reaffirming this, relationships are more important than ever in, in sales. And, you know, that could be between the, the sales manager and their employees. Uh, but in, in the context that I'm talking about, it's with the sales professional, the sales team and the customer. Uh, how do you, teach that like so when you when you talk about uh, that nature versus nurture and you know how do you teach relationships and how do you teach the skills required to avoid that churn uh, that could come as a result of too much overhead 
I think there's a couple things. Is like like one, um, I so part of our business is focused in the media and entertainment space, and uh, and so and that is a place where relationships are are king uh, still to this day. Um, and so I think one um, there we may be hiring people who bring you know the quote unquote. Rolodex, even though no one even knows what that is anymore, but it brings the list of contacts. But I think there's a couple things there, which is um, trying to start to identify how single threaded you are in an opportunity or how single threaded are you in your relationships at a, at a customer. And there are solutions now like Gong and others that will tell you in your deal, are you single threaded? You know, that can look and kind of connect to your contacts to say, you're single threaded in this very large opportunity. Um, I think there's other there's been other times where you can say is like you're looking for three levels of contacts across three groups in an organization, because what we've seen in a lot of cases, particularly with SaaS, is um, on the positive side, if someone comes into your organization, uh, into the the customer who has used you in the past, okay, we're we're safe and we're strong. But if if someone comes in and doesn't uh, hasn't used you and used your competitor, you're at risk. By the same token, if if your champion leaves and goes somewhere else, well, you better be following that person and trying to figure out where they go to see if he or she can bring you there. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's trying to show and teach people how a champion or a catalyst within an organization can make or break you, and uh, and, and and try to show that um, through the success of your deals. So. The tech, there's a lot of tools and technologies out there that'll highlight where uh, someone might be getting stuck um, in there, you know, whether it's consistently or just in this one deal. And it might be, hey, you, you know, you're single threaded. The manager says, hey, you're single threaded. The coach does something different, don't they? Yeah, well, they, they certainly do. And it's like, how can I help you get, get out and above that? And so I think one of the, you know, the, 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 the feelings or one of the, the things you always had to do as a leader was early in a de- or late in a deal, late in a quarter, it was like, hey, Dave, hey, Matt, can you give a call to this person to try to get this deal over the line? And while you would always do it, you would always be like, this is a shot in the dark, you know? Well, well um, they, think, and- they think you have the, the silver bullet or what our friend Pat Galvin calls the magic beans. Magic beans, yeah. And so, yeah, that, you know, you know if that works, it's probably because they knew you were going to do this and they, they were setting this up. But I think what it's like early on, you know, some of the things that you can do is to say like, how can we get to this person? Let's map out the organization to say, who's in this decision tree or to create like a mutual engagement plan with the person to say, who are all the players on your side? Here are all the players on my side. What I've tried to do in some cases is I create a video introductions to say like, hey, my name is Dave. I'm the leader here. I own both the sales and the customer success side. So my team's going to be with you sort of, you know, you know, cradle to grave, so to speak. And I, you know, I want to make sure you know that and that you have this contact early on. So when I get pulled in at a certain point in time later in the process, it's not like this is a Hail Mary he's trying to throw. It's like, oh, he's been here and he's been tracking this. Right. So it's a form of building the, the relationships before you need them. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, excellent. Um, so a lot of the, these, these are like super important nuggets that you're dropping here along the way. Uh, over time, 
have you, does this fit into a framework or an approach that you use? And if so, how would you describe that? You know, I mean, is it uh, an approach? I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a couple things. Is like one, you, you talked about it, you know, um, thank you for calling me a servant leader. I think I would like to think it's called servant leadership. And it's like, how do you help your team get to your, get to their number, not your number? And I think early on in a process, early on as a sales leader, I, I was thinking about it the other way, um, which was like, how do I, how do I help these people get me to my number? And you were adding up a bunch of deals to get you to whatever you needed to, to do. And you weren't spreading yourself across your, your entire team. You didn't have a comp plan that maybe incented more people to get to their numbers than just to get to an actual number. Um, and then there was like a pivot, you know, and it was working for a particular person who was kind of talking about servant leadership and this notion. It really started to click for me is that like, I can get to the same number by making sure they're getting to their number. If they're getting to their number, they're making money, they're, you know, they're, they're learning, um, they're developing and they're staying at the company. Um, and so that is what I would like to, to, to think that I do. And that's what I, I, I try to emulate. Um, and it was a, it was a pretty specific pivot at one point in time in my career. Well, we're the whole concept of coach the scale is designed to bring people into a community, uh, uh, you know, of like-minded folks who care about, uh, developing the, each individual on the team, uh, not just like, how do you, you know, how can all you help me get to, to my number? And it's, it's hard. Um, it's really hard. And I would say the majority is still that ladder, which is how do all these, as a manager, how do I get all these people on my team to help me get to my number? And I wonder with all the tools um, and technologies to help sales teams, you know, like the, like the gong, you know, the advancements in CRM systems and, and the like, the whole stack that, that, you know, you know about, and by the way, that Coachum is a part of, uh, with all of that, the, average performance has gone down. So the investment has gone up exponentially, but the average performance of the team has gone from something that when you and I were first starting was probably in the high 80s in terms of a quota achievement to 43%. So why do you think that is? Well, I think, yeah, I've been, I've been on all sides of that, I've inherited those types of numbers and I've probably, you know, inadvertently created those, you know, types of numbers. I think, um, but I do. It's okay. It's like, it's like therapy, Dave. Yeah. It's like therapy. Uh, we're not perfect, man. We're not perfect humans. But I think, I think one, a lot of it is in the planning process. Okay. And like, what is the logic that you put into that planning process? And so like, are these numbers, do, do these numbers have the, 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 the number of the, the, the correct amount of stretchiness and attainability in a number? Have you looked at it from a tops down view um, as well as a bottoms up view? Um, and have you sourced the number around the company? And so I think that's one thing. I think two, there's been some, you know, cr crazy things that have happened in our, in our world that you could not have predicted. And so you, you, you have a, a pandemic that, submarine some companies it grows in other companies people then think that's a net new normal and then there's a bubble and it bottoms out and then how do you replan for that and so you know i think some companies are, are thinking about it in, in, along the lines of like 
quarterly plans or, 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 or plans for every six months. But so that's, that's one. I think two, hiring, um, hiring the right people in the right number of people and having a, you know, a methodology where you know when you, know, you, you need to hire that next person. And that has been one of the hardest things. More often than not, you probably land up hiring people too early as opposed to too late. And I worked for someone on a previous board of mine who was saying is like, you should wait until sales reps are bursting at the seams with work and almost begging you to hire someone else. And that's when they should, you should hire them so that they feel as though that they legitimately have a chance to hit their numbers. And, and that has a bunch of, um, you know, downstream effects when it comes to uh, culture, when it comes to retention, certainly when it comes to productivity uh, per per rep, right? Um, there's a lot of pressure in the business. Uh, I, that's a obvious, that's a captain obvious statement. But from a coaching perspective, coaching sometimes it's like prospecting for a rep, right? Coaching is the most important thing that a, a, a leader does. But when the you know, when, when times get tough, it's one of the first things that gets tossed aside. And then all of a sudden it's like, roll up the sleeves. Let's, you know, let's talk about the deal. Tell me again about the deal. Update me again about the same deal that I just asked you to update me on, you know, an hour ago. What do you say to those, um, those managers who are dealing with that pressure from above, uh, and, but yet know that it may be too myopic just to always be focusing on the forecast and on the deal and, and maybe more, you know, as, as someone recently said uh, on the show, you know, coach uh, to the career, not to the quarter. And does that help people get to their number and then thus help the team and the company? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, <clears throat> it's really easy to become a super rep. Um, it's really easy to take over a deal. And by easy, I mean, it's easy to insert yourself. It doesn't, I don't mean it's easy to, if it was easy to do and accomplish, you know, everyone would do it. But I think it becomes a never ending cycle. If you become that super rep and if you become the person who always has to get involved in an opportunity to, um, uh, to get it over the line, your team and you will not be able to scale. And so, you know, and I think it's, um, we should intervene to help opportunities at the right time, but um, we, you know, we, we want to get deals over the line, especially some of the larger ones. But the more we insert ourselves as a super rep, the more that that person's always going to look to us that way um, and, and that you'll never scale. And so I think like Nirvana as a sales leader is, you know, you have six or seven reps um, and they're all able to, to drive opportunities um, maybe they need some help and they need some brainstorming um, on opportunities to, uh, to to kind of help shape them and scope them. Um, and then you get involved in the most strategic. And I think what the other thing too is, is to try to create a culture where like feedback is welcomed. Um, and that is like having deal reviews internally where you can pick apart a deal and that a, a rep doesn't feel um, critiqued and criticized, but that the that the entire team is like poking holes in the deals because what we're trying to figure out is where could this deal go wrong? How can we position this better? How can we um, price this right the first time um, so that you know it's not going to be a never-ending negotiation? And so I think if if you look at it from that point of view, 
Um, you're constantly coaching, not just when someone has, you know, lost the deal or, you know, you're, you're coaching throughout the, the, the life cycle of that deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a couple of guests on that touched on a few of those points too. Uh, Amy Appleyard talked about uh, the Im- importance of collaboration and bringing everyone in to help solve the problem. Um, Bill Bagshaw talked about the importance of having an environment and a culture of you know, psychological safety, like where you can speak up, you can be wrong, uh, you can say the wrong thing, but it's all going toward helping uh, you know everybody get get better w- without fear of, uh, you know, retribution or being told you're, you're an idiot. Um, so, and, and all of that leads to, you know, getting, you know, everybody achieving that level of success that they want, not just the, the one or two people on the team and not just the, the manager his or her herself. Um, again, which is easier said than done. Uh, how do you look at coaching, someone who's maybe uh, newer in the role versus someone who's uh, a veteran senior in the role. Like, so, you know, do you see, I guess, let me ask you a direct question. Do senior reps need coaching? I think everyone needs coaching. You know, I think um, what the actual coaching needs to, to, uh, to be is where it gets different um, or where, where it's differentiated is um, sometimes that person who's been there forever um, or, you know, can almost get, you know, drunk on their own success. And mm-hmm. the way they- yeah, success done, is a poor teacher. Yeah, yeah they, the way they've done it three or four times is going to work this time. Or, you know, they've pulled some deals, you know, um, uh, you know out in the last second and they, they think they can always do that. Um, and so I think one, really trying to figure out like where is their, like what are their blind spots that they have? And then how can you help with that? How can you help reveal that and, and create plans around that? I think the other side to it too is, is what is next for that person? Um, and, and what do they want to do next? There are plenty of people out there who want to be individual contributors. That's where they get their energy from. They don't want to be leaders. <clears throat> but for those people who want something else, whether or not it's you know, a vertical promotion diagonal is like starting to craft that. And what do you need to get to that, to that, to that next role? As for the, um, as for the, the, the newer reps is I, I think you have to pick one or two things initially and, and focus on that with that person. And when that person starts to show development on that, pick the next two or three things um, so that you're not overwhelming them with their gaps that you're building on those, on those successes and, and starting to really, round them out. All right. So here's a, a this or that question. Um, you know, not, maybe not the easiest one, but what would you rather have? Would you rather have the person on the team, you know, the loud and proud, they love the fact, you know, they can do no wrong. Um, you know, it's, you know, their way, uh, or the highway and they actually produce the numbers, but they leave a trail of destruction. You know, the, you know, they contribute at some level to, uh, a greater toxicity to the culture, but they're putting up the numbers, but they're not always putting in the work. And so you don't know if they're getting lucky or not. You don't know how they're doing it, but they're putting it up. Or would you rather have the person who maybe isn't where you want them to be? They're, they're not hitting their number yet, but they're, they're plodding away. Like every day they're, they're grinding, they're coachable, they're learning, they're taking feedback, they're applying it. 
it's just happening slower and they're not at the level of performance as the other person. If you had to pick one, what would you pick? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's an easy, it's an e- like, well, it's easy to say in the hypothetical, um, uh, be, you know, because it's all about your numbers, but I, I would take the, the latter, the, again, and the, the word you, the word you use there that was most important to me is coachable. Um, you know, and you know, the, the things that I look for when I'm interviewing someone is like, are they coachable? Are they curious? And are they competitive? You know, and and so um, to me, someone who wants to get better and is demonstrating a desire to get better um, is what's important to me because that's someone who you can you can work with and build and and develop. Someone else who's not, um, it's their way, their way or the highway, and they're probably winning more because of either like you good fortune and opportunity or their territory versus something that they're actually doing. Well, we're, we're finding that out now, right? So this goes back to, you know, uh, circa 2001, 2002, when, um, you know, after the bubble burst and these people who were achieving great levels of success were tanking and they were struggling and they, and, and, you know, it was hard to figure out why. And then you realize like, oh yeah, well, they, they really weren't that good. They were lucky. Uh, they were at the right place at the right time. And, you know, it was all about going forward, you know, finding those folks who are coachable and who could create buyers in difficult markets. And we went through the same thing a little bit in 2010 and we're going through that now, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, who, who is coachable? Who is built for this business for the long term? And you said it's easy and then you, you clarified that, yeah. which is good because I was going to call BS on yeah. you. It, it's easy in a classroom, <laughs> yeah. but it's exactly. not easy. Yes. So, yeah. so what do you do, Dave, when you have that person? I'm, you, you don't. I'm not saying you do. But what do you do when you have that person who is toxic uh, and they're, they're not putting in the level of work consistency, consistently, but they are putting up the numbers? Do you keep them or do you get rid of them? So I think um, I think as it's, it's harder to get rid of that type of person, you know, because there may be people who are lower than them um, in performance. And how are you trying to show them um, why their time is 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 over versus someone else's? But I think it in those cases um, you need to give feedback early and often. Um, and so I think you need to give feedback that. Um, and, I've, and I've said it to people throughout my career is like the worst thing I can say as a leader is I told you so. Okay. Um, uh, what I, what I, what I would want to say is like, Hey, we talked about it at this date and this is what I was saying. Um, that's not an, I told you so that's kind of a reminder of, of, of conversations we've had. And so I do think if someone there's a big difference based on the question you asked between someone who's highly productive and kind of going about it their own way. But when you add the toxicity into it, that is when I think the, the, the differentiator is because that toxicity typically ends up in, in two places. One, your customers, um, you know, feel it. And then two, the rest of the company in the org feel it. And, and, you know, people have used the expression about breaking glass, and it's okay if we break some glass here. And that means like we're we're um, uh, we're, we're pushing people to the to the limit, so to speak. 
but people don't really have a tolerance on the other side of that phone or the other side of that, you know, you know that, um, uh, that sale to have their glass broken, so to speak, mm. and to be treated poorly, to be uh, deceived or to be like um, oversold. And so I think you, need, you do need to move on from those people. Yeah. And, and look, again, that's not a, an easy question. I use some absolute statements when I formulated the question. It's been shared with me that it, if you have difficulty or if you're too accepting of someone who's breaking way too much glass internally, you're probably not seeing the impact that it has on your team and that other mm-hmm. people are leaving. Um, and, you know, at, you know because they're, you know, they don't want to deal with this jerk anyway. And the other thing is, is do you have a culture that's only based on achievement of the, of the number or are there other elements that are important to uh, conditions of employment in being part of that team? And the way I've, uh, I've seen and heard other leaders deal with these types of situations is that they, they have um, minimum committed behaviors that everybody needs to do. And there's a way that everybody needs to carry themselves. And if you don't do that, not, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if you're hitting the number or not. But that takes time. That takes experience. That takes courage. Um, and it takes a level of buy-in and trust from from uh, the other members of the team. W- would you agree with that? Or- yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes... Um- you can see it, but the rest of the organization can't see it, you know? And so the rest of the organization sometimes sees the number that 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 person's putting up, but not the tax on the organization. And they wonder why BDRs are leaving or the solutions consultant are leaving or the the, uh, CSMs are leaving. And it's because they're they're in this person's wake, you know? And, And so I think being a team player, um, is it incredibly important in this sales world that we're in right now? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I would argue the opposite could be true too, where everyone else sees it, but you don't, you, the leader, oh, 100%. you know, yes. the emperor has no clothes, yeah. that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, so kind of leads into a question, Dave, what's, what's an important lesson you've learned the way, along the way when it comes to coaching and developing people, leading people? You know, I think, um, I think data always wins, you know, in a lot of cases. And, you know, and I think a lot of times um, salespeople love to tell stories. Okay. Um, and we love to talk about this one opportunity where this happened um, or that, you know, that, that one deal that happened and we're going to do this over and over again. And for me, you know, the data wins because it provides scale or breadth of a, of a challenge or a problem you have in an organization. The story adds context to that. And so I think um, really um, trying to get immersed in what is the data telling us? Do we have the right data? Do we not have the right data? Um, uh, you know, um, data wins in terms of trying to look at conversion rates. And it's really easy to say, we have a conversion rate problem. Let's go and fix that conversion rate. But then the data through a sales funnel will tell you, do you have a, um, an early stage interest um, issue? Do you have a demo issue in terms of how you're positioning your product? Do you not, are you not doing the right discovery? Are you leading with too high a price point? And so to me, data will help you figure out where your coaching needs to be applied. Sounds like you've had some experience refereeing conversations between salespeople and marketing. Well, I, yeah, why? Well, yes, I have, Matt. You know, I think there's, but the, I think there's two sides to that too. Is like, I've been on 
on the sales side of that conversation. And then I've been, I've been the referee. And, and I remember one of the times uh, I, I, was, I, when I was in a, a role and I was a CRO and I owned both the sales and the marketing and, and, I, and, and a frustration by our sales team was brought to my attention. And, uh, and I remember saying to, this, to, to, to these folks, I said like, hey, so the, the, the issue that they were having was, you know, of course, like many salespeople um, the leads have, suck. Have, have said before the leads suck. And, uh, and I was like, okay, let's have that conversation. Let's bring, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's not, let's bring our marketing team into this. Let's give them this feedback. But I said, what I want to tell you is marketing is going to come with a lot of data. They're going to come with binders of data. And because uh, marketers historically have a lot more data than sales does. And if you guys only come with stories, you're going to get crushed. And they're like, okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Um, we go into the conversation. Marketing comes in with binders and binders of data, um, points out that it was not a, you know, a, a quality issue. It was likely at least TB, TBD, but we think it is a follow-up issue. And after, I remember, like, I went going to the sales, to the sales leaders, and I was like, so how did you think that go? And they were like, you were right. We got we got crushed on that. We didn't bring the data, <laughs> and uh, and and so I think that that that's one example of it. But I think um, I think uh, yeah, that really like that's something that I took on from early in my career at, at, at Oracle. That's funny. Yeah, uh, data 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 wins. Data data can be very powerful. Uh, so Dave, now you're at Three Play Media. Um, Two-part question for the audience: What does Three Play Media do? And uh, the, I guess the more important question for the for the group is: What do you love uh, about working with your team at Three Play Media, doing what you do? I think there's a couple. So Three Play Media, we're a Boston-based company. We have locations in Minneapolis and Calgary, Canada, and we are a video accessibility company. And so we provide captioning, audio description, localization services. For, for video files and whether or not that's in the media and entertainment space, it is in kind of corporate Fortune 500 or as well as EDU. Um, and so providing accommodations and accessibility to make sure content is more readily available. And so that's what we do. Um, so a lot of times if you're watching um, a show, uh, an event, um, a sporting event, and there's captions, um, there's a very good chance we've provided that for you. In terms of what I love, you know, about, um, you know, three play media and working with my team, there's a couple things. It's like one, um, one of my criteria when I was looking for my next opportunity was um, working with a company that's doing good in the world, you know, and I think if it's something that you truly believe in, um, you're much more emotionally attached to that. So I think that is um, something that I do truly love. Um, there is like video content is so widespread. Um, and so, and that's a beauty, but that can also be, um, overwhelming, um, mm -hmm. at times. And so I think one of the things that I'm enjoying right now is trying to get our team really, um, surgical in where we're focusing, um, on certain parts of the market. So like, what can we do in EDU to win best? What can we do and what part of corporate America can we focus on that we think we have the most you know, winnable opportunity and what can we do in media and entertainment? And that's a lot of testing and you know, making mistakes, making some failures, learning how to better approach the space, learning how to leverage your, your network to figure out um, your feedback before you even start to make those mistakes. And so that's, that's, um, that, that's what really kind of excites me and keeps me going every day.
Uh, awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And like, I, I know you've invested in yourself and your career and you've evolved over time. Uh, Dave, how important is it for a sales professional to invest in his or herself? I think it's, I think it's, it's highly important, you know, because one, um, just because, you know, I think one of the things that we're really benefited from today, you know, whether, whether or not it's like podcasts like this or content is there's so many different, um, sources out there to kind of help shape and develop you. Um, you don't have to wait for your company to decide we're going to do this methodology or we're going to do negotiation training. Um, and so I think it's ridiculously uh, uh, important. And so I think when you talk about, you asked earlier about like qualities of salespeople, and I mentioned competitiveness. Um, you know, one of the ways that I seek competitiveness is asking like, how do you improve yourself? Like, what was the last thing you did? What was some of the sources um, that you've used? Now, I guess if you have an upcoming interview with me, you're going to get some, uh, you're going to get some cues to some answers, uh, some questions that might be coming your way. But I want people who are willing to invest in themselves as well as what we're going to invest in, in them as a company. Excellent. And um, great leaders and coaches are often that way because they had the behavior modeled for them. Uh, not sure if that was the case with you. Can you talk about a time where you were the recipient of some really impactful coaching that uh, made a difference in your career, whether you liked hearing it or not? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, listen to your podcast. I knew this, you know, this, this, you always ask this question. I think it's an incredible question, but it's a difficult question because there have been so many situations where um, people gave you incredible feedback or difficult feedback. And so I think like once super, super early in my career, this is before I was even in, um, in, in, in sales, I was working for, uh, I was working, uh, at a lo at Boston college locally here. And I remember, Go Eagles. yeah, I remember someone gave me, gave me feedback and it was, it was more about like the equivalent. It was, it was like how I, like how I was handling something was affecting other people. Okay. Um, it wasn't feedback that I was expecting and it was certainly humbling, but I think I extend that to like the virtual team. Okay. Um, and how that virtual team, you know, is dependent on your success. So I think like that was tremendous. Um, that feedback I gave earlier about data always wins came from Hillary Coplow, you know, um, so who we worked for at, yeah. at, uh, uh, at Oracle Direct. And I think for what I really learned, you know, from her was, how she was always thinking about the next step of the organization. You know, sometimes as a leader, it can get, you can get so focused on how are we going to get to this number right now versus how are we thinking about where we need to be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months down the road. And it always felt like she was using data in that example to project or to predict where we needed to go next. I just want to echo that um, shout out to Hillary, uh, you know, we, we very formative years. We were just becoming managers for the first time. I think both of us uh, back then and worked in Hillary Coplow McAdams uh, organization. And I, I agree. I learned so much. And one of the things I learned and took away was exactly what you said, which is the power of data. But another thing was that leaders didn't always you, you didn't they didn't always have to do things the way the same way. Meaning 
like her style, like I, it was foreign to me at the time. And it did not, it wasn't always nurturing, but wow, as I progressed, and, and I think as you progress in your career, you take on an immense appreciation for that type of leadership, that type of coaching. And, um, you know, from someone who went on to have a tremendous amount of success um, in this business. I haven't talked to Hillary in a long time, but I'm glad you brought that up. So much of it was just even about preparation. Like I remember going into that first Friday morning forecast. I had like documents and documents of where our deals were. You know, I got taken to the cleaners on it. And then the next week I was a thousand percent better and a thousand percent better. And it was just like, you know, she wasn't preaching this notion of like getting better every day, but that's, that's, that's the result of what, of, of, of how she led and, and drove us. Um, well, uh, so sp as we go down memory lane a little bit there, uh, there's a lot of things that we've seen and experienced, uh, in our careers. And, and sometimes when you look back, you just shake your head and you laugh and you're like, wow, I can't believe that you know, that happened. And, you know, some of them are funnier than others. Some of them are more instructive than others. But can you talk about something that, you know, kind of from, uh, from, from the old days that, you know, really leaves you with, with a, a memory today? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot and that, you know, some of them are better shared over a beer. Um, but I think um, like one in particular, one things like I, I, I kind of hold pretty dearly is like how someone, presents themselves in an interview process um, is indicative of probably how he or she will act or behave as a, as a salesperson. You, you have to think about it in terms of like, they're selling the thing they are, they should know best, which is themselves um, and how they prepare for that. Um, and we've all had people who like didn't prepare in terms of what you do. Um, and we used to always have like kind of that list of questions you would ask and they would probably got like an inch deep, you know, but in terms of once, once the market started flipping to more behavioral, behavioral questions, um, you, I think it was challenging for people who were interviewing. And I remember this, this one person and I wasn't the hiring manager. I was, I was supporting my close friend who was the hiring manager and this person was pretty boastful in an interview and I could tell, and it's not necessarily something that, that resonates with me. Um, and, you know, he was, he was talking about like how good he is and what he does and how he prepares for, you know, a, a meeting. And I, and I said to him, okay, like, well, tell me a little bit more about how you prepare for a meeting. And, and you know, he started telling me I do this and I check on LinkedIn and I check on this. And, you know, I look at people and yeah. I'm like, okay, how did you prepare for this interview? And he was like, well, I looked at, you know, all of your LinkedIn profiles. Um, I, you know, and then like, I knew the light bulb went off and the light bulb went off for me at that point in time. It didn't go off for him. Um, which is because, you know, when someone checks on your LinkedIn profile and I was like, okay, um, could I ask you, what did you learn about me? Um, now, that was in no way, shape or form meant to like, you know, stroke my ego and tell me what you learned about me. But it was like really getting three layers deep onto the questions. And there was silence in the room, you know, like everyone who was on this interview panel knew like this was over. Um, but as a salesperson, it's like you, you need to, you need to know where some of these questions are coming from so that you can best prepare yourself for that. I felt bad for the result of that because I didn't feel like taking someone's legs out but it was necessary at that time. 
So Dave, uh, I'm glad you brought that story up. I love that story. You told me that story years ago, and I've actually run with that. I've told that story so often that I've named it, and I think I've took credit for it. I can't even remember, but um, I call it the uh, the behavioral interviewing one-two punch. And again, it, it's we we teach a lot of behavioral interviewing um, with our our leadership teams. We've done so for the past ten years. And again, I'm not trying to use it as a weapon, but the, the, you know, with the whole thing about behavioral interviewing is, uh, tell me about a time when, right? Like, give me some examples. So if someone's, if pre- preparation is important to the hiring manager and the person is talking about how they're great at preparation, you will give me an example. <laughs> oh, like how did you, you know, so it's like the one, two punch. It's so how did you prepare for this meeting? Boom, jab. <laughs> oh, I went on your LinkedIn profiles, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so what did you learn about me? Boom. That's the uppercut. Like if they can't answer that, they're done. They're yeah. done. They like yeah. they just hung themselves out to dry. So maybe that's having a little bit too much fun, but um, uh, I'm glad you brought us down memory lane there. <laughs> I, I got a question for you. It, any regrets in your career? Professionally speaking, is there any anything that you 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 regret that you're open to sharing? And if not, that's totally fine. I, I certainly do. I certainly do. You know, I think um, there were probably times in my career where there were things I was challenged by and I was facing that were just obstacles at the moment, um, and that I avoided the obstacle by seeking new employment or seeking another opportunity and. Mm-hmm. Some of the coaching that I've given some of my friends and colleagues, you know, have been, are you running from an opportunity or are you running to an opportunity? And like, no matter what, we should focus on running to an opportunity because if you're, if you're, if you're running from something, you better also be running to something. But if you're only running from something, there's a really good chance you're going to make a wrong decision. Um, now, by no means am I suggesting st- stay somewhere that isn't healthy for you or isn't the right place for you, but do whatever you can to, to find that place that um, is a good landing for you and that you're running to it and you're excited about it. And I think there were some circumstances in my career where I left something earlier than I should have, um, and I would have learned a lot more from it had I stayed there. Hmm. Sound advice. I, I actually thought you'd say something else. I thought you'd say, don't order the meatloaf, but, um, that, that your answer was, was, was much more, uh, powerful. Um, so you can never get up. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, we'll talk about that, you know, maybe on another, another episode, uh, the leave, uh, episode. leave, leave, every, yeah, leave everybody wondering. Um, We'll leave that right there. Learned a ton, Dave. Uh, really appreciate you uh, sharing your lessons learned along the way. We talked about being coachable, being curious, being competitive, and running to something, not from something. And so, uh, Dave, if people want to reach out, if they liked uh, what you talked about in terms of what 3Play Media does and they want to learn more, or they just have a question, follow-up question based on something you talked about, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Or if they want to know about that meatloaf comment, man. But or if they um, want to know uh, about the meatloaf comment. So it's, it's probably easy. It's easiest through email. It's dphillips at threeplaymedia.com or through LinkedIn. Um, you can you can find me easily there. Um, and I'd love to help out or chat with anyone in any way I possibly can. Excellent. Dave, uh, really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Thanks, man.
And uh, thanks for everyone out there um, that who's listening. Really appreciate you. And we really appreciate your feedback. If you've learned something today, if you've laughed a little bit, tell someone about the podcast, Coach the Scale. Go to YouTube, go to Spotify, wherever you consume your podcast. Hit the subscribe button, leave a comment. Uh, we do read them, we do respond, and we do act on them. Again, Dave, thanks a lot. Uh, it's been my pleasure to host this conversation on behalf of Coach to Scale. And until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them. <laughs>